Good morning. It is good to see you, Jay. Thank you. We appreciate you serving this morning uh, through singing. It is good to see some folks that we haven't seen for a while. I also know some folks who, as the Delta variant picks up, are going to stay away for a while. And so for all of you at home, know that we love you, know that we miss you, know that we're praying for you. We hope you're praying for us. And however it looks, we will continue to journey together and seek the Lord together. I'm, I'm glad you're joining us this morning. If you have your Bible, open up to James chapter 1. And I'm going to start in verse 2, and you will find that on the screen behind me. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's pray together before we continue. Father, we pray that you will deepen us, that we will grow in maturity, in our walk, in our understanding, in our interaction with one another and with people in the community. During times of ongoing trials and troubles and trauma, Father, we pray that you will help us hold up, and we pray that you will give us hope that through it all and after it all, you have the power to take us deeper into your life. And we pray this through Jesus' name, amen. So it was five or six years ago now, and there was a massive winter storm that was bearing down on the Northeast. And as I recall, at one time it was projected to hit New York the hardest, and it ended up going a little further north and hitting Boston. That's where the worst of it came, and reports said that up to a hundred inches dropped in that area. And you may remember this blizzard from about five or six years ago. I went to a conference in Boston that year. It was about three months later. It was in April. And the weather was getting up to the 80s or so during the day, three months after that storm. And there were still mounds of snow because snow plows had just pushed these mini mountains all over Boston just to clear the streets and make room for all the snow. Well, it was when that blizzard was bearing down on the Northeast that I first learned about another blizzard that hit more than 100 years earlier. It was the blizzard of 1888 that pummeled New York City. And there were some reports that there were, storm, uh, that there were snow drifts 30, even 50 feet high in that region. That's five stories of snowdrifts. And along with all the snow, there were winds up to 80 miles an hour, which is why they called that blizzard the Great White Hurricane. Sounds like a boxer from the 20s, doesn't it? 
The great white hurricane stepped into the ring. But you have all of this snow and all of this wind, and you can imagine the damage that it did. And so it took out power lines, and it took out telephone lines, and it took out telegraph lines. And when the power lines went down, it caused fires all over the city, but it also made getting anywhere really difficult and really dangerous. So getting around the city in 1888 in New York was already a challenge. There were pedestrians everywhere, just like today. There were also horses all over the place. And taxis at that time were horse and buggy, but there were also a lot of trains and commuter trains in the city, but the train tracks were on the street, which even in good times meant there were a lot of collisions between pedestrians and horses and wagons and commuter trains. And then you throw in a blizzard, and the blizzard dumped snow all over the tracks, and it also took out the communication in the city. And so trains would drive into snow drifts and get stuck, but there was no way for other trains to know, and eventually other trains would come along and plow into the back of those stuck trains. And there were some of the trains at that time that were on elevated tracks that you can see. They were trying to get it above where all the pedestrians and the horses were. But all of those tracks were vulnerable to the weather. And so not only did the lines freeze, but the switches froze, and the communication was down, and there was no way to communicate. And so there were some trains that would get stuck or derailed, and then more trains come behind, and they don't know about those trains, and there were more accidents, and there were more deaths, and you have people trying to walk in blizzards, heading out to work, and they don't know. They don't have a forecast that day to tell them how bad it is out there. And it was an absolutely devastating storm. But the reason I tell you about that storm, that famous blizzard of 1888 in New York is because many historians see that as a turning point for the city. Because for a long time, the city had tried to think about ways that they could improve their power, how they got the electricity around and the telephones and also improve the transportation so that it was not so vulnerable to the inevitable bad weather that would hit in the Northeast. But they never could land on a decision because it would be costly and timely, and there was a lot of corruption in the city government, and they didn't necessarily trust one another. But after that storm, they decided there's got to be a way to get all of that in a place when it's not, where it's not so vulnerable to the weather. And the decision was, send it underground. Put the electrical wires underground. Put the communication wires underground. And most famously, what do a lot of us think of when we think of transportation in New York? You send the transportation underground the subway system. New York was not the first big city in the world 
to develop a subway system. That actually happened in London, and it happened 25 years earlier in 1863. But it was so costly and so disruptive to create the tunnels, the first tunnels of the tube in London. They just dug massive pits in the middle of the road, and they built it, and then they went back over. It was so costly and just so disruptive that New York said, we don't want to have anything to do with that. But that blizzard of 1888 hit, and they said, there's got to be a different way. And it still took some time to land on the plan, and it still took some time to put the money together, and it still took some time to finally build it. But when they look back, historians all look at this moment. That terrible event was the catalyst for very important and necessary change. So I want to go back to the verses that I started with from James 1, familiar to many of us. And when I start, I'm going to be completely honest. I'm going to confess to you that I have always struggled with James 1-2. I have never liked that verse. Because when I read it in the NIV, and we're encouraged to consider our trials and our troubles as pure joy, that that doesn't sit very well with me. Or as the New Revised Standard Version translates it, nothing but joy, that, that doesn't exactly connect with me. When I think of pure joy, I think of things like a wedding day. I have served at many weddings. I've attended many other weddings. Those are times of pure joy, right? When we think of joy, we we think of that. I told you about a month and a half ago, I went to a wedding of my nephew in Lubbock, Texas, beautiful Lubbock, Texas. And during that service, there were a lot of tears of joy. Now, it may have just been sweating people's eyes because they did it outside in June in Lubbock, Texas. But there was a lot of joy. And on the dance floor after the wedding with a bunch of college students and recent grads, I didn't make my way there, but I could smile from a distance. There was a lot of joy. And there was a lot of happiness. Or when I think of pure joy, I think of birthdays. And not just birthday parties, although that's a part of it, but the the actual birthday with all the exhaustion and all the euphoria of that new life entering the world. That's, boy, that's pure joy, right? Or parents, grandparents, you think of Christmas morning and you see the electricity in the air for your kids when Christmas morning hits. I tell you some things I don't think of when I think of pure joy. I don't think of troubles. I don't think of trials. I don't think of trauma. Guess who has two thumbs and just lost his job? This guy. Guess who just found out my best friend's been talking behind my back? Guess whose spouse just told them they think it's over and they don't want to go anymore? Guess guess who just found out they've got a life-threatening disease? Who wants to go to Loblolly and get some ice cream? It's locally owned and locally made. Let's celebrate. 
So maybe you're more spiritual than me. And when you hear, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, you're like, yeah, I'm all in. And that is entirely possible, but I have always wrestled with this. And sometimes you'll hear someone say, after they've gone through a period of great struggle and trial and loss, and they look back and they reflect and and they say, you know, if, if I had to do it all over again, based on how I've grown and, and what I've learned, I, I would, even though it was hard, I would do that. And I would say, if you're at that point, if you can an- answer that honestly that way, and, and you believe it, and you're saying that, and not just because you think that's what other people want you to hear, or that's the spiritual thing to say, or that's what you're supposed to say when you're in a Bible class. If that's where you are, praise God. I am happy for you. And I've had some of those moments. I have. But I've also had moments, experiences that were painful for me and painful for people I love. And if you said, would you do it all over again if you had a choice? I'd say, no, not a chance. Absolutely not. Here's the thing. I'm not convinced that's a requirement to walk the path that James is requiring. Sometimes we get there that that I would do it all over again. But there are other times and I would never repeat it if I could. And I would like to suggest to you not to get hung up on those kinds of hypotheticals. You can still lean into the hope and the growth that James is pointing to. The trial doesn't have to be something you would choose. James is not urging us to become masochists that go looking for trouble in creating trials when we don't have them. Thank you, sir, may I have another. Thank you, sir, may I have another. Thank you, sir, may I have another. We don't have to like it or love it to learn from it. We don't have to groove on it to grow from it. I think the New Living Translation gets closer to the heart of what James is after when it translates verse 2 this way. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. There's possibility there in the midst of the pain. The joy is not in the pain. The joy is in the hope that we worship a God that does not abandon us in the midst of our trials. And the joy is in the hope that we worship a God that can birth beautiful things, even out of ugly situations. So psychologists coined a term a few decades ago that I think James is actually describing 2,000 years ago. And the term that was coined just a few decades ago is post-traumatic growth. And it's a play off of a term that we've started to understand a bit more as a society, post-traumatic stress. And often we think of that most when we think of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. 
And one of the places that we think of PTSD is those who have experienced trauma. Maybe it's something they lived through or maybe it's something they witnessed. And they're having a hard time moving past that trauma. They're having a hard time not continuing to live in the throes of that trauma or to keep replaying that trauma. And some of the folks that we know can struggle with that the most are people who've lived through combat situations. And they may have come back, but they've not come back yet from what they've gone through. I was in my early years of preaching. I want to say it was 1999, and I got an email from an old friend that I went to elementary school with. And he went to a different middle school than me and different high school. And so we really lost touch with each other after elementary. And this was about 15 years afterwards. So, And he reached out via email and he said, hey, I see you're in the area. I was in North Dallas. Can we go to lunch sometime? I'd love to catch up. Sure, let's go to lunch. And so we went to lunch and we sat down and there were a few pleasantries and catching up and seeing how the families were doing and all that sort of thing. And then Then he got to the reason why he really wanted to have lunch with me that day. He said, did you see that movie, Black Hawk Down? I said, no, I I didn't, but I think I I know what it was about. It was about an event that took place in 1993. U.S. troops and U.N. troops were in Somalia. There was a civil war taking place. And U.S. and U.N. troops were just there as peacekeepers, but things were getting ugly. And so, at one point, two U.S. Black Hawk helicopters were shot down. And there were survivors, but they were surrounded now in hostile territory. And so, there was an attempt to get them out, and things turned nasty. And in the end, in this battle, 19 American soldiers died and uh, 73 were wounded and up to 2,000 Somali casualties uh, happened. And my friend says, I was there. This was 99. It happened in 93. He said, I was there. And I still feel like I'm there. I just keep reliving it. I I can't move past it. I, I keep thinking about friends that I lost. I keep thinking about strangers that I saw die. I I keep thinking about lives I had to take to survive of these people that I barely knew anything about before we were on this mission. And I feel like I'm stuck there. I'm not sure I knew in 1999 what PTSD was. But looking back, that's, that's where he was. That's what he was struggling with. And all I could do was promise that I was there and God was there. And I would, I would walk with him and I would listen to him. And I would also encourage him to keep seeking the help that he was seeking because it's not good for us to get stuck in those places of trauma. And so I want you to hear me say that 
that as we talk about trauma, as we talk about trials, as we talk about troubles and tests that we go through, I'm not suggesting that all of them are the same. And we've talked about this throughout this series. We can go through something very similar and it impact every one of us in different ways. But we've all been going through some difficulties these last 18 months. They have been traumatic for all of us in one way or another. Maybe for some of you it's, it's not that serious. and For others it has been very impactful. It's been very difficult. What I want to tell you is no matter where you are in that journey or where you've experienced things, there is a hope that goes beyond this moment in what you're going through. Pure joy is not supposed to necessarily be in the pain, but is the possibility and the promise that God can bring growth even out of the bad. Or to paraphrase what Paul says in Romans 8, 28, we are confident, we know that in all things God works to bring about good for those who love Him. Which is not to say, in my opinion, that that passage is saying God caused the bad. I don't believe God is the source of everything bad or evil. That's not my understanding of the way God works, but it is to say that God does not leave us and God can create opportunities for good and growth even in the midst of and especially after we get through the trauma. I think there's power in that word and in the understanding of the post in post-traumatic growth. Because sometimes we put pressure on ourselves or we put pressure on other people to be further along in the process than they are or than we are. That we find the pure joy right now. That we find the opportunities for growth right now. When sometimes people are in full trauma mode. They're just in survival mode. Which is not the most conducive time for deep reflection. We've got to give people space and room and time. I like the description that James gives. In the, middles, in the middle of the trials and the trauma... Faith is often all about perseverance, right? Perseverance is just, can you hold up? Can you hang on? Can you, can you not cave? Can you keep from buckling? Can you continue? Perseverance, many times, is just one foot in front of the other. That's, that's all we can do during some times of perseverance. It's at the end of perseverance that the growth especially has time and space and room to spread out. It's at that time, usually after, that maturity can happen. And that new priorities and new perspectives can be born. So notice what James says. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let that thing move a little while. Now, it's not done. Perseverance isn't done if you don't ultimately get to a place of growth. But you've got to give yourself some time. Give other people some time 
and some space. So I want to conclude with a few ways that we can experience growth during and especially after trials. And one is this, just be open to growth. And be optimistic that growth is possible. Just having that mindset that God can work in ways I can't see and He can take me place, places that I can't even imagine right now. Just that openness that God has not abandoned us that God can do more with this situation than we can see right now does amazing wonders for our mindset and eventually our maturity. But the next step is be ready to do the work because maturity doesn't come automatically. We all know that you can go through times of trials and tests and troubles and trauma And in the end, you cocoon more, you close up more, you don't grow more, you don't expand more, you don't uh, reach greater levels of maturity. Trials and tests alone are not a guarantee of growth. They are an opportunity, a place where growth can occur. Growth also takes work. It takes that openness to the Spirit. It takes deeper study and reflection. A willingness for God to expand our understanding. To reframe our focus and our priorities. When we hit up against something difficult. When we experience something that makes us rethink the way that we've always done things. The way we've always seen things. The growth occurs if we'll do the work to dive in deep, to not just stay the person that we were. It's not growth toward maturity if nothing changes. That's perseverance. Perseverance is hanging on the best you can, but maturity is, I'm going to let God take me deeper in my practices in my understanding, in my love, in my joy, in my peace. And be willing to lean on others, which has been harder than ever over the last 18 months. We've had to be creative and looks like we're going to have to be creative for a while longer. But holding up and actually growing through difficult times, it it takes leaning on one another. And so I would encourage you to do that. Lean on friends. And I would encourage you to be that kind of support to others. And I would suggest that that's part of the growth process. When we take our trials and our troubles and we turn them into opportunities for service to others, which is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 1, and we've talked about that before. When God gives us His comfort, He does it to build us up, but He does it also with the idea that we can build other people up in the process. And have you noticed that when you use your difficulties to bless other people down the road in theirs, have you noticed the ways that helps you heal? Have you noticed the ways that helps you grow? Have you noticed the ways that deepens your own walk, your own faith, your own understanding? 
We have all been through a lot. And I know many of you are still going through a lot. I've, I've mentioned it before. I started off perhaps way too optimistically with this sermon series after the storm because the storm isn't over. And it's not easy. But there is reason for joy. We hurt, but we don't hurt as those without hope. We don't hurt as those without opportunities for joy because if we are open, if we will allow the Spirit of God to lead us and deepen us, then God can take us further into lives of maturity and lives of ministry to one another and to our community.